Sirius XM Radio is better with Bogle Wines. 70s on 7, 80s on 8, better with Bogle. Alt Nation, Hip Hop Nation, Hair Nation, better with Bogle. Madison, Howard, Andy Cohen, better, better, better. Y2 Country, Prime Country, Carrie's Country, yep, all better. The Beatles Channel is better, and getting better all the time. Everything on Sirius is better with Bogle. Award-winning, family-owned wines ranked as some of the finest available for around 10 bucks. As long as you're not driving, it's better with Bogle. Bogle Family Vineyards, Clarksburg, California. Please drink responsibly. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Protests continue tonight across the tri-state. Right now you can see the protesters are jumping this barrier right here, and U.S. Park Police are pushing them back. Overnight, authorities in Minneapolis fought back, aggressively deploying tear gas to break up crowds during the fifth night of protest after the death of George Floyd. We witnessed for many hours overnight was a confrontation between police and protesters that symbolized the anger of a community that is pleading for and demanding justice. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, Converts Edition. The uprisings across America have succeeded in drawing into question the reflexive narrative that a lot of us white people have when it comes to police. If nothing else, I hope you, dear listener, got a little uncomfortable hearing that litany of headlines that show journalists continuing to frame police violence against protesters as some kind of equal and opposite set of forces. But just because we're thinking a lot more about the rights and humanity of protesters, as we should be, I hope we don't totally lose sight of those cops and what committing and witnessing violence does to them. Because every once in a while, those events can have the same effect on them that they do on us. They can be the beginning of a revelation, the beginning of a question about the system they're a part of. That's what happened with this week's guest, Norm Stamper. Norm was the Seattle police chief in 1999 when protests over the World Trade Organization flooded the city streets. At that time, he approved the use of less-than-lethal force against mostly peaceful protesters, and he's regretted it pretty much since. He left the force in 2000 after 34 years and is the author of two books about police reform, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police in 2016, and an earlier book that he'll talk about a little in our conversation, Breaking Rank, a Top Cops Expose of the Dark Side of American Policing. Coming right up, Norm Stamper. Norm, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you. So we have a lot to discuss, but I'm always really interested in people's turning points, um, the things that happen that put them on the path to conversion, let's say. So I was wondering if you could describe to us the scene of 
of the Seattle, I guess, situation. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, 1999, the WTO protests were happening. You were the chief of police and you made a very fateful decision. I did. Uh, I made a decision to authorize the use of chemical agents, a euphemism really for tear gas, uh, against uh, nonviolent and and indeed non-threatening protesters. My fellow Americans who had assembled in an intersection that we believe from a public safety point of view was necessary to be cleared. Uh, And so uh, my field commander and my operations commander are back and forth on the radio. I'm monitoring that traffic uh, and I'm increasingly convinced that they're on the right track, that we have to trot out tear gas and apply it liberally uh, to to uh, reclaim that intersection. And of course, that was the cop in me who blessed that decision. The police chief and me uh, took him five years into retirement to come to this conclusion, now deeply regrets it. But in that moment, were you kind of like, okay, yeah, all right, job done? Or did you have a sense even then like, hmm, something niggling at me? Well, yeah, there was definitely something niggling at me. And in fact, uh, it was slapping me upside the head, uh, uh, trying to get my attention. Uh, You know, the, the voice, if I were to hear it today, would be saying, are you a fool? What are you thinking? Uh, these people are nonviolent, they're non-threatening, they've done no property damage, they've engaged in no uh, physical confrontation with anyone, and yet we're using tear gas against them to move them out of that intersection. And of course, the, the cop in me would be saying, look, if we had somebody bleeding out on the other side of that crowd, if somebody were in cardiac arrest and we needed to get medical assistance, emergency medical assistance to that individual, we would not have been able to. Well, two things uh, on, on reflection in hindsight. One of them is, did we really need to clear the intersection? I mean, is it not? <laughs> is it not possible that an ambulance, a police car, a fire engine could maybe drive a couple of blocks uh, out of the way to get to the location of that medical emergency? And the answer to that is, of course, that could have happened. And the second one was, do you realize how these people are going to react once you've done uh, what you're contemplating? And of course, I grew up at a time in police work starting in the uh, mid-60s. This becomes ancient history now. But it was a time of major campus unrest and uh, civil rights insurrections and um, uh, anti-war demonstrations, pitched battles between citizens and police. And uh, the standard, really standard go-to tactic was that if you didn't have enough cops, and rarely was that the case, then you trot out the tear gas and, as I said, apply it liberally. And it, it works. It's, it's an effective uh, means, for example, of clearing an intersection. The ultimate question, of course, is at what cost? Uh, but throughout my early career as a police officer, as a sergeant, lieutenant, all the way up the ranks, uh, it was a standard go-to practice. And we didn't even question it. I will speak for myself. I didn't even question it. What else are you going to do? You, you have to use tear gas under certain circumstances. 
I no longer believe that. So that was the cop voice. It must have been pretty loud and, um, let's say, practiced at this point in your career. You'd been a cop for 34 years. That cop voice was maybe felt like the normal voice. But what was what was that telling you? Like, Well, one of the things that, that I find interesting about this whole process and my personal uh, journey was that I had been identified as a, as a, uh, a leader of a burgeoning police reform movement, uh, a, a new breed advocate of radical change. I'm plucking headlines from memory now. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking back to my days at San Diego State where I wrote my senior thesis on uh, the community as DMZ, breaking down the police paramilitary bureaucracy. So it's not like I was not uh, informed about not committed to a new way of policing. And yet here I am, uh, you know, blessing this decision to, to use chemical agents against my fellow Americans. So that does speak, I, I think, to the uh, strength, the resilience of the traditions within that culture, uh, a tradition that should have been challenged decades before. But it helps me understand how you made a transition from burgeoning radical reform-minded young Norm to, you know, 34 years later, um, someone who for whom the police voice was the loudest, loudest voice in the room, which is that you became a part of a community where that voice is, the, is what everybody speaks in, right? Well, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, that's It was a language. You learned the language of the community that you entered. It's actually asking a lot of someone to bring a new language into a community that's already pretty fluent in another, right? That's a so, very, very good way to put it. So, of course, like you started speaking their language, but you pro I, I'm guessing you weren't quite aware of it. Yeah, I, I think it is safe to say that that uh, as as informed, as conscious as I believed to, uh, myself to be, I, I was in that moment just utterly clueless. Had you okayed use of force against protesters before this moment? And also, actually, is tear gas a force? Is that use of force? Tear gas is a use of force. And in fact, it's a very potent use of force. It's uh, remarkably effective. Uh, if you've never been gassed, you kind of have a difficult time maybe wrapping your, your mind around this idea that if you can't see if every pore in your body is stinging and crying out for relief, if you are utterly disoriented, which are effects of chemical agents uh, and, and more, then you're, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to conceive of it as a use of force because we think of, we think of billy clubs, we think of uh, uh, fists, we think of firearms that those are uses of force. Well, chemical agent uh, is called a force multiplier, uh, as I think I was suggesting earlier, at least meant to, and that is that wh where you lack enough cops to, to achieve a particular mission or carry out a particular tactic that you have concluded is an appropriate tactic, um, then you 
look to tear gas uh, to to give you the edge you need to accomplish that mission. And I'm just curious if you had okayed that use before or if this you had. Oh, yes. In fact, uh, in my 28 years in San Diego, um, if I were to, if I forced to count the number of times, it would be in the dozens, um, perhaps even the hundreds over the years uh, in, in which uh, police officers are taking rocks and bottles or sniper fire, which happened on, on a number of occasions. Uh, and, and you are trying to clear a, a, a stretch of road or an intersection uh, for whatever public safety reasons you have in mind. Uh, and it's not working with, uh, you know, with a bullhorn, then you, in fact, use tear gas. So it was, it was, and I'm sorry to say, it remains common. Um, when I ultimately had my come to Jesus moment, uh, five years into my retirement, I was on book tour. And the numbers of uh, audience members in one city or another who came up to me after my talk just to ask, why in the world did you use tear gas on us um, at Sixth and Union on, on November 30th of 1999 in the morning? Why did you do that? And I would offer my explanation, and it was a practiced explanation. Uh, and it was heartfelt. I believed what I was saying, but I was wrong. I was just completely wrong. Were you wrong in those other times as well? I believe so. Um, yeah, I, I do believe that there uh, is a time and a place. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem, the issue really is not the technology. It's not rubber bullets. It's not handcuffs. It's not a baton. It's not a gun. It's when and under what circumstances is a police officer in a free and democratic society justified in using those tools or those weapons. Um, and, and as much as I like to believe that I had really thought hard about that question, I had not, not adequately for sure. That's interesting to me because it makes this moment on November 2nd, 1999, all the more special because it, it wasn't as though this was a, a breaking of the seal for you. This was something you'd done maybe hundreds of times before. What made it different? Well, what, what made it different for me at the time and in that moment was nothing. In other words, this is what the police do under these circumstances. It's formulaic. Uh, we had deemed it in the institution a successful uh, methodology, uh, a successful tool. Uh, and it was almost autonomic. In other words, it was truly a thoughtless uh, decision. Um, and so, you know, my role at the time as, as the chief of police, because uh, I was out on the streets during that entire uh, week, uh, was to rock, walk around to the far side of the crowd. <clears throat> and it was densely, that intersection was 
packed densely with, with protesters to make sure that I could hear the warning, to make sure that, that we had satisfied the elements of the law in declaring an unlawful assembly and telling people what we were going to do if, in fact, they failed to disperse. So um, that, was, that was completely automatic. It was uh, reminiscent of those many, many other times Whereas either a beat cop or a supervisor or a manager, I was involved in clearing an intersection. So there was nothing really different about this except the size of the crowd, perhaps. We had 50 to 60,000 uh, people on the streets of Seattle, which is a fairly small city, uh, both in, uh, in geography and in population. Uh, but that was it. It was just a, it was just a matter of scale. This is much bigger than many of the uh, previous incidents that I had been involved in. But the c- circumstances were not all that different. We had people saying <clears throat> no to what we uh, deemed a lawful order and a necessary order. And um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, if I may. Uh, I was uh, at a book reading, my first book reading after the first book came out in the city of Seattle. And after my reading, uh, 60, 80 people lined up with books and I was feeling really good uh, about this moment, uh, returned because I live now in a cabin on an island uh, off the state of Washington. But I had returned to the city uh, and, and gave my reading. And as I'm signing books, I notice a guy working his way up to the front of the line, has no book in his hands. I'm thinking, well, he has a question or a comment, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm uh, all prepared for that. And he uh, comes up to the table, and he said, I used to respect you. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting, and maybe it's going to be hard to hear. Uh, and I said, and now you don't? And he said, and now I don't. Well, why is that? Well, because you use tear gas on nonviolent people, your, your, your fellow citizens. How can you possibly justify that? And I gave him the explanation, similar to the one that I've given you. Uh, <clears throat> and at the end of a short conversation said, well, I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree. So for the next year or so, I'm, I'm generally giving interviews and doing a book tour, a couple of book tours. And I'm now at, at the University of Washington. This is one year after that first reading. Can I just interrupt and, really quick? And that first book sure. was a memoir? It was, yes, it was a, 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 my publisher, Nation Books, called it part memoir, part polemic. Okay, but uh, it was about police reform. It was called Breaking Rank, a Top Cop's Expose of the Dark Side of American Policing. So I just, I just want to get straight. Like, you really thought you were on the side of righteousness here. Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't think it. I knew it. Right, right. So you're going on this book tour. Yeah. You feel like I am a good cop. I am one of the good guys. No one ever oh, thinks of themselves absolutely. as a bad guy. But you must have really yeah. felt like I'm different from those bad guy cops. Sure. Th- those bad apples. Sure. I'm for reform. I'm great. I'm p- people look, are going. Look, yeah. Liberals will look, love me. Look at me. Listen to me. I'm. I'm a, I'm a model of what you want in policing. I'm thoughtful. I'm, I'm considerate. I care about my fellow citizens. Uh, you know, I was just full of it. <laughs> uh, and, and as I finished this, this reading at 
Kane Hall at the University of Washington, I see the guy from a year ago. And once again, he's working his way to the front of the, uh, of the line. To, I was signing books on that occasion as well. And I will never forget this moment. He had tears in his eyes and he, I had apologized. I had used the occasion to uh, make my confession and, and to make a, a very public apology. Uh, and he, uh, you know, the first time around, I had said, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. This time we had a lovely conversation. And I said, well, I guess we get to agree to agree uh, that, that you just don't do that. And, and, you know, this is not a totalitarian, a totalitarian society, uh, ostensibly a free, democratic, multi-pluralistic society. Uh, we're all about <clears throat> freedom and liberty uh, and, and respect for individual uh, constitutional rights. And um, but I, I'm confessing here and now it took five years for me to get to that point such as the, the strength of my belief that we had to do what we did, however unpopular. And so just to be clear, that November 2nd moment, oh, November 30th moment, um, was just happened to be the last time you ordered use of tear gas? It's not that that moment was really did anything for you? Because I'm curious, like, about what changed. Like, these, you, there's clearly, like, some steps along the way. And I'm curious if the first step was that moment or if the first step was the gentleman who talked to you at the book reading. The, the first step was the, was the first conversation I had with that gentleman where I'm telling, look, if you only knew a little bit about the real world, if you only understood a little more uh, uh, about real cops and real policing and public safety, you would understand my rationale for, for, for the, you know, the justification of the use of tear gas under those circumstances. But he was the one who was naive. He was the one who didn't get it. And, and so um, that's when I said, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. And we went our separate ways. And it was over the course of that next year, that would be my sixth year into retirement, mind you, uh, that, that I am uh, awakening to, to the uh, utter failure of, of, uh, uh, of you know, <laughs> my personal policy to accept the use of, of that weapon under those circumstances. So this is really interesting in the context of what we've learned this season on the show, because um, you're an example of something that's relatively rare in the conversion business, from what I understand. Uh, the, the most common kind of change of mind is actually what happened when you joined the police department. Uh, the, you become just, uh, you know, absorbed into a community and you, you take on the values of that community and you don't even notice you're doing it. And that's, that's a very subtle conversion experience. Some people wouldn't even consider themselves converts, but you can go a long way, you know, that way. And then another version, though, another way that things happen is that people have a set of beliefs and that it is somehow pointed out to them that one of their 
beliefs or one of their guidelines or something that they hold true to is not actually in line with their proclaimed set of values. And that seems like that's what happened for you. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to put it. I was busted. Uh, I, I, I mean, I absolutely was. You see, when I became a cop, I took the test in San Diego at age 20. Uh, I had no aspirations of becoming a police officer. I was working at a veterinary hospital and playing rhythm and blues at night and on the weekends. Uh, that was my training for, for, for policing. And a friend was going down to the War Memorial Building in Balboa Park to take the police test. And he stopped by the veterinary hospital where I actually lived as well. And he said, why don't you come with me? And I said, I don't want to. And he said, and I said, but I'm going to stop at McBinney's and get a beer and a, and, a, and a brew afterwards. And I said, I'm in. And so I'll just wait in, in the car. As it turns out, I was heading for a eucalyptus tree to park my skinny butt under that tree and just wait for, for Ted to come out of the, out of the test. And the proctor was standing on the stairs to the war memorial building and said, you young man, are you here for the police test? And I gave her a, you know, sort of a gray B movie double take. And it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not here for the police test. Why would I be here for that? Uh, because I did not have fond uh, feelings for the police. Um, as, as an 18, 19 year old, uh, I saw police do things in my own hometown and in San Diego, because uh, I lived just south of San Diego, uh, that, that I thought were appalling. Uh, we, we were in rehearsal one Sunday afternoon, I remember it, in uh, southeast San Diego, uh, predominantly African-American community. A couple of cops show up at the door. They've had a noise complaint. And of course, we're offended that they think of it as noise, but they knock on the door uh, and interrupt our rehearsal. And then they, um, the, the one of the two cops who did all the talking, um, used racial and ethnic slurs. He was angry. Uh, he was, he was horrible in, in a word. Uh, and Dave Johnson, our lead singer was yes, serene and no serene and, and doing absolutely nothing to provoke this kind of reaction from this cop. So at that moment, I was so angry. I've come to realize that behind all anger is fear. And, um, and that means I was sitting there on the couch, as were other band members and various uh, chairs and couches around the living room and, and, and just paralyzed by fear that these guys are going to break into the, to the house and hit us over the heads with those clubs they had on their, uh, on their gun belts uh, and arrest David. And, and, and we were all just, just petrified. And um, so with, with that kind of um, interaction with police, I'm thinking, that's the last thing I want to be. I also get a little more personal here. I grew up in, in a household whose father was brutal. Uh, he was, he was a, a cruel man and was... Uh, um, physically punishing as well as emotionally abusive. And I'm telling myself, because I did agree to go in and take the test, I'm telling myself as I hit each milestone in this process of the selection process, the written exam, the oral interview, the, the medical exam, the physical test, 
that I can always bow out anytime I want because really I don't want to be a cop. I'm just sort of, I had just gotten married uh, and uh, I was, as I said, 20 years old when I took the test. And I think, well, you know, I can't, you know, my, my bride's not going to be real happy living in, in a veterinary hospital and there's a small apartment adjacent to it. So um, that's, that's sort of my biography is that I'm resistant to becoming a cop and then I become one. And it's almost by accident. Uh, and within five minutes, uh, Ana Maria, I am sucked in. You use the word absorbed. That's a good word. I was sucked into that culture. I was laughing at jokes that were not funny, that were cruel. I was saying and doing things I'd never said or, or done before in my life. And but for a principled prosecutor 14 months into the job, uh, who pulled me up short. Um, I don't know where I would have wound up, uh, but he put the fear of God in me. Uh, I handed him an arrest report. He read it and uh, asked me a series of questions. And at the conclusion of answering those questions truthfully, he asked, does the Constitution mean anything to you, Officer Stamper? And I was pissed. I mean, I was livid. You know, how can you ask me that question? I'm out there on the mean streets, this <laughs> being San Diego. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out there in the hot weather and the cold weather. Once again, this is San Diego. But I'm out in the real world. You're, you know, pacing the halls of the San Diego courthouse in a pinstripe suit with your hair slicked back and your tortoiseshell glasses looking like a Hollywood movie star version of, of, of a prosecutor. And you have the nerve to ask me if the Constitution means anything. So needless to say, I was busted on that occasion, uh, big time. Uh, and it did, in fact, uh, serve as a catalytic event in my life. And now, some opportunities to participate in the system we're also trying to dismantle. We'll be right back. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Hydrant. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting daily goals, exercise, meditation, whatever. But not everyone has time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can get a jumpstart on your mornings and feel great. Hydrant created a refreshing electrolyte powder that you mix directly with water to efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. It hydrates you quickly and keeps you going for longer. Each rapid hydration mix has four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. And it packs a punch to help your body hydrate fast and stay hydrated. If you're looking for that extra boost of energy, there's also Hydrant Plus Caffeine, which contains 100 milligrams of caffeine from green tea. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by an Oxford scientist. It's loved by pro athletes, top performers, celebrities, and has thousands of five-star reviews. It's made with real fruit juice powder, is delicious and refreshing, and comes in a variety of flavors, including the summer-friendly iced tea, lemonade, and fruit punch. I'm a fan of the blood orange flavor myself, and something that you don't need to know about me but is relevant at this moment is I don't like drinking water. It's a weird thing about me. I just don't like water. It has to be flavored in some way. Hence... 
I am actually been experimenting with various electrolyte uh, powders, and I do like hydrant a lot. Like I said, the blood orange flavor is really good. I think also they have a raspberry flavor that's only available in the variety pack. So I suggest you get the variety pack. Plus, it's backed by 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love it, send it back for a full refund. You really need to try it for yourself to see what I am talking about. It tastes incredible and you will be hydrated. <laughs> Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. Save even more with a monthly subscription. We've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash friends and enter our promo code friends at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com slash friends and promo code friends for 25% off your first order. With friends like these, it's also brought to you by Nutrafol. Women don't talk often about thinning hair, but nearly half of all women experience it by as early as age 40. If you're one of them, you know that can be scary and stressful, which only makes it worse. Control isn't a given. It's a taken. Take charge of your hair growth and in the next few months, grow thicker, fuller, healthier hair. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow your hair as strong as you are. And it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. On top of thicker, stronger hair, without lasers or chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients may also help you get a handle on better sleep, stress, skin, nails, and libido. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for a customized product recommendation that puts the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back in your hands. When you subscribe to Nutrafol, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. Shipping is free and you can pause or cancel anytime. Does it work? Yes. 77% of women saw improvements in just 90 days. Whether you're experiencing thinning hair or not, you deserve hair as strong as you are. Nutrafol can help you achieve your best hair growth naturally. So you can grow thicker, stronger, healthier hair and support this show by go to Nutrafol.com and use promo code FRIENDS to get 20% off. This is the best offer available anywhere. And just by the by, uh, when people use offer codes, that is the strongest way to support a show. Just so you know, that is the best way you can support a show is to buy the products using the offer code and our offer code, FRIENDS. And you will get 20% off Nutrafol.com promo code FRIENDS. You spell that N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code FRIENDS. Did you know that you touch your phone over 2,000 times a day? That's probably a little low for many of us. And now more than ever, it's important to keep items like your phone clean because if your phone isn't clean, your hands won't be either. Hometics UV Clean Phone Sanitizer kills up to 99.9% of bacteria and viruses at the DNA level using no harmful chemicals or liquids. It sanitizes and disinfects both sides of your phone 10 times faster than other products on the market. It takes just one minute with UV Clean versus 10 minutes with the competition. And it's not just for your phone. It's like a little thing that you open up and put things in. And you can put your glasses, your lipstick, pacifiers, keys, credit cards, pens, your computer mouse, anything that'll fit. The UV phone sanitizer also fits, you know, any smartphone. And with up to 70 uses per charge, your phone never has to be filthy again, even on the go. There was overwhelming demand for this product, but it is back in stock. They have black, red, and purple 
colors. You can choose what matches your style. I decided to give Hometics uh, phone sanitizers to my father-in-law and my father for Father's Day. My father-in-law probably thinks he doesn't need it because he doesn't think this virus is a big deal. But my dad is over 70 and has asthma, and I worry about him a lot. So I sleep better knowing that he has a phone sanitizer and knowing that he believes he needs to use it. Now, even with overwhelming demand for UV Clean, with friends like these listeners can get free shipping plus $20 off a future Hometics purchase. Just head to GetUVClean.com with promo code CROOKED. That's GetUVClean.com promo code CROOKED. And don't forget, every time you wash your hands, make sure you clean your phone too. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back. And let's jump into that conversation with Norm. An observation about all of these events that ties into every story that we've heard on this show so far, which is that in all of these transformational moments— the thing that happened wasn't somebody like going head on against you trying to convince you of something. In each moment, one by absorption, and then two, it sounds like by being called out, you changed your own mind. You were, it was drawn to your attention by someone or by an event that the thing you were doing was not in line with what you, who you thought you were. And so you changed a bit. And that is that is just exactly how conversion seems to work, which is that you can't actually convert someone else. They have to, it's an inside job. But that brings me to my next sort of set of questions, which is that, so now you're out as a reformer and a critic. Um, you probably have a, you have a lot of legitimacy and credibility with people like me and probably, you know, most people with, with your biography, how, but who's your real audience? Who hears you in this, in this critique? I hear you. Do cops hear you? They hear me well enough uh, to disagree with me. They, they hear me well enough to oppose uh, most Certainly not all, but most of what I advocate. Uh, and, and that has been a tension in my personal slash professional life uh, all of my adult life. Um, there's, there's another sort of piece to this personal bio that I think is important to understanding conversion. And, 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 and it goes something like this. When that guy got my attention, and he did, uh, you know, it was over the course of probably 30 to 90 seconds, I went from anger to embarrassment to shame. And I remember feeling at a deep cellular level, my God, what has become of me? Who am I? Uh, and so I set out to be a change agent 
And, and in fact, I became a hydrophobic gas bag of a police reformer w- within the rank and file. Uh, and I, and uh, it didn't make for pleasant, you know, coffee shop conversations and so forth. Uh, 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 there were a number of um, uh, unpleasant moments. I got hate mail after a certain article appeared in the paper and on and on and on. But the, the, the important thing for me was, um, yeah, I made that decision. I'll, 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 I'll take credit. I'll accept responsibility for having made a choice. But I wasn't being mindful, and I think you were getting to that. Uh, I wasn't really appreciating, if I'm going to become a change agent, why do I alienate the very people I most seek um, to change or to help influence change within? So, so uh, it took me a good long time to come out of that petulant phase <laughs> and into something with, with a, a little more maturity. And then I consciously set out to learn um, leadership, to learn organizational and political leadership and to develop an appreciation of the kinds of communication skills and so forth that can help leaders uh, actually lead. Uh, and that's what I studied in my doctoral program. And I've now got a body of knowledge. Just, just this morning, I was uh, interacting with someone who was looking for some leadership counsel. Um, but I can't claim, uh, I wouldn't even deign to claim that I've arrived. Um, I know I have uh, a shadow side. I know I have other blind spots. Uh, and you know, that's a battle you take to the grave. Um, but if you've got people around you who are willing to call you on your stuff and thank God I had those people, uh, you got a chance, you got a chance. So in AA, like we talk about, it's a program of attraction, not promotion. We just try to, to do the thing that we believe in. And if you're interested, come join us. And that, to me, that's probably a little bit the leadership you were talking about, I think, is one leads by doing. Um, But the other thing that makes me think of, it would be embarrassing to me if we did not bring up whiteness in the context of policing. So I'm going to bring it up now. Um, We we are all, hopefully, a lot of us are having a moment of, of reckoning with our whiteness, White people are, when I say we all, I, part of the reckoning is to be very clear when I say we. And one of the things that I feel like I have heard from both other white people further along the path and from my friends who are black or are indigenous or Latinx is go get your people, right? Your responsibility is not even necessarily to be on the street with me, although that's great, sometimes good but go get your people, go educate other white people. And um, yeah, so how's that going with other cops? I mean, you're saying that they, they hear you enough to disagree, but you're probably one of the few people that can reach cops. Do you reach them? I, I know that I reach some, and I know that you know I, I reach others some of the time, and I know I antagonize the hell out of many others. Um, and so I think it, it comes down to the issue and the moment. Uh, and 
to the overall quality of the relationship uh, because a you know a strong durable relationship can can serve as a shock absorber when you're presenting ideas that are uh, jolting or jarring to, to police officers. Uh, it's like some messages that are being conveyed today are messages, believe it or not, that police have not heard. Or if they've heard it, they've instantly uh, uh, pushed it to the side and assigned it uh, fringe status, lunatic status. Well, there's always a certain percentage of critics of the police are going to be advocating radical propositions like dismantle the institution, defund policing. Uh, And there are police officers who are now for the first time hearing that people are very serious you know, about those proposals. They're very uh, sincere in their anger. And and much of that is coming from white middle-class Americans, which is blowing their minds uh, because it has always been seen as, uh, you know, a, a, a small percentage of Americans, predominantly black people, Latinos, uh, young people, poor people, that's, that's where opposition to policing comes from. And now they're hearing it from their neighbors. They're, he- they're hearing it from people who historically have either kept their mouths shut or defended the police in, in the face of, of criticism. But this cannot be ignored. I- I- I'm 76 years of age. Uh, I've been on this planet for a while. Uh, I was a cop for 34 years. I've written and researched and studied and observed policing um, virtually every day since I left the institution. I have never, ever felt that we were at a time in this country where change is possible, where the kind of change that I think needs to happen is possible. Um, uh, We hear a lot of proposals for what I consider to be important but utterly insufficient improvements, incremental reform. Uh, What's needed, I'm absolutely convinced, is radical reform, rearranging the way the molecules are organized so we get a different system of public safety, a a different system of civil liberties uh, or the enforcement thereof. And right now, uh, the, the time has never been better. Uh, it, it, it is one of those very painful moments in the life of the institution. And a lot of people uh, <laughs> uh, who wear uniforms and, and, and plaster badges on their chests and guns on their hips are heading for the exits. Uh, I spoke to a friend of mine in Seattle who said that he went into personnel. He's in the process of retiring. Uh, and he went into personnel, human resources, to hand in his gear. And uh, he said, Norm, I've never seen anything like it. There was a line of veteran officers uh, waiting to do the same. Uh, and most of them were not of retirement age. They, they were just, they're getting out. Um, and my response to that is, well, there could be an exception or two, but good riddance. Uh, it's time for some really tough decision-making. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to be cruel, but there are a lot of people who should never have worn a uniform 
They are the people oftentimes who are lining up to leave. And I say, good riddance. The kind of person we need today is very different from the kind of person we needed or thought we needed before May 25th in Minneapolis. Norm, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.